Tonight we're going to pick up where we left off in uh, Matthew chapter 13. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to uh, Matthew chapter 13. And we're going to be in verses 47 through 50. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find uh, a couple at the end of each row. And tonight's passage uh, in those Bibles can be found on page 819. Again, we're going to be reading... Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. This is Jesus speaking, and this is what he says. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that You sent your Son into the world, that he spoke these words. We thank you that it it doesn't stop there, but that you also, because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, you sent your Spirit, and your Spirit helps us to understand your word. God, we ask that tonight, God, that these words wouldn't just remain red or black letters that exist on a page in some book that was written a long time ago but that your spirit would apply them to our hearts, that your spirit would convict us of sin and and challenge the way we live. God, that we would leave here not with a desire to work harder or try harder. God, that we would leave here with a greater knowledge of what your son has done for us and more of a desire to live that out where you've placed us. How we thank you for the blood of Christ which pardons us from our sin, which purchases us his righteousness, even though we are unrighteous. God, we ask that your word would be clear to us tonight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So tonight we're going to look at the second to last parable in Matthew chapter 13. This is the seventh parable out of eight in chapter 13. He's given us parables up to this point about how uh, we respond to the kingdom of heaven. He's given us parables about uh, the reality of the kingdom and how that, how that affects the world right now. He's given us parables which talk about the kingdom's kind of dramatic and intense growth. And then just last week, we saw two parables which talked about the surpassing value of the kingdom. Tonight, he's going to introduce us to an idea that we've, we've kind of already seen before as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew. It's not really a new idea to us, some, something that we've heard before, but, but I think what is going to be different about this passage tonight is that the way that Jesus tells us this parable, the way he describes this, this big reality, even though it's about what's going to happen at the end, It's going to connect to our lives in the here and now. It's going to connect with how we live our lives this week if if we let the Spirit move in us. Our main point tonight 
in this passage, in this parable, is that the kingdom of heaven divides the world into two groups. The kingdom of heaven divides the world into two groups. And what we get in this parable, it's kind of different than a lot of the other ones we've covered. Most of the time we either get a parable and then later we get the explanation of it or we just get a parable. In this passage we get both side by side. We get the parable first in verses uh, 47 and 48. And then in verses 49 and 50, Jesus gives us the explanation of it. He does this because as we saw last week, in in, in this part of Matthew 13, Jesus is speaking directly to the disciples. So he doesn't have to wait to explain the parable. He can give the parable to the disciples and then explain it right there. And so thankfully, we don't have to really think about what this parable actually means for us because Jesus tells us himself what it means. And as I've said, what he, what, he, what he talks about is that the kingdom of heaven divides the world into two groups. So what we're going to do tonight is we're first going to take a quick look at the parable, and then we're going to spend most of our time focusing on Jesus' explanation of it. So as we just read, this parable Jesus gives us, the parable of the net, he says the kingdom of heaven is like this net. This net that's, that's thrown into the sea, and it gathers up fish of every kind, and then these guys come along, they drag this net on shore, and then they sort the fish. They put the good fish in containers to keep, and they throw out the bad fish. That's what happens. And before we move on to Jesus' explanation of what's happening, we need to notice two things about this parable. The first thing we need to notice is, is what it communicates Actually, that's the second thing. The first thing we need to notice is is how Jesus communicates it, how he communicates the parable to us. And then the second thing we need to see is is what he communicates through the parable. So this first thing, how Jesus communicates this parable. This is another place in the Gospel of Matthew, and, and we see this in all the Gospels, but as a body, we've seen it in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus communicates truth about God to the people in a way that they understand. He doesn't use big fancy words. He doesn't use unfamiliar phrases. He communicates to them in a language that they understand. We see this especially in this parable when we think about who Jesus is and and who he's speaking to. This is a real question. What was Jesus' profession? What was his job? He was a carpenter. Right before, it wasn't until he was in his 30s that Jesus started doing the whole walking around and teaching and preaching and healing people. Before that, he had a job. Even though most guys in their 20s today sit in their mom's basement and play video games, Jesus wasn't like that. He had a job, and we learn from Scripture that his job was a carpenter. In in Mark uh, chapter 6, there's these these Jews from Jesus' hometown, and they're talking to Jesus, and and what they say after Jesus teaches them about the kingdom of heaven is they say, they say, isn't this Jesus, the carpenter? And they're not really wondering if that's who that is. They know that's who it is. They're asking that question to make a point. They're saying, this guy who's, who's preaching, who's teaching, who's doing all these things, he's just a carpenter. What gives him the right to teach us about the kingdom of heaven? But what's important about our passage is just recognizing that simple fact that Jesus was a carpenter. So here he's talking to this group of people, he's talking to his disciples, and he gives them an illustration from everyday life. But he doesn't give them a parable from carpentry. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like some carpenter thing. 
He says the kingdom of heaven is like a net that's thrown out into the sea. And when you think about his audience, you have Peter and Andrew and James and John and the eight other disciples. But those four guys, we know for a fact that those four guys were professional fishermen before Jesus calls them to be his disciples. Probably more of the disciples would have been fishermen too because that was a very popular industry in that day. And so when Jesus gives this parable, when he he illustrates some truth about the kingdom of heaven to these people, he's speaking it to them in a language that they understand. And I think that as we see Jesus do this here in Matthew 13, as we see him do that elsewhere in the Gospels, I think that we can learn a lot about that as a people. Because I don't think we're very good at communicating truth. We're good at communicating it to each other within the church, within our Christian friends and family, within the circles that we walk in. But when we start to think about how to explain things about God to people outside of those circles, we get confused and they get confused. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Sometimes we might say something like this. The Spirit has been speaking to me lately about how I need to walk in the fruit of the Spirit. Or maybe we'd say something like, I've been facing this decision. I'm just asking God to to speak to me and to move and open and close doors so that I know which way I'm supposed to go. You guys all understand what I mean when I say that. But to people outside of this room, people that live in the real world, people that aren't familiar with the kind of Christian phrases that we use, they don't understand what we're talking about. We seem like one of two things. We either seem like a bunch of weirdos, or we seem like this group of people that in order to get into, in order to communicate with, you have to learn this language that they speak, which is unlike anything anyone else in the real world uses. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't speak in these complicated terms. He speaks in everyday language that everyone can understand. And so I think we should strive to do this better. We should strive to communicate more clearly with people who aren't familiar with the Christian things that we say. And we all do this. I do this, you do this. And I think as we think about this, as we think about how we can do this, because it's easy to say, don't use Christian words, don't use Christian phrases. But it's another question when we talk about what we should do instead. And there's this quote from from C.S. Lewis, and I think we have a slide that has it on it, which I think can help us. This is from an interview that was given six months before he died. Somebody asked him the question about how young authors, specifically young Christian authors, can become better writers. And this is what he said. The way for a person to develop a style is to A, to know exactly what he wants to say, and B, to be sure he is saying exactly that. The reader, we must remember, does not start by knowing what we mean. If our words are ambiguous, our meaning will escape him. I sometimes think that writing is like driving sheep down a road. If there is any gate open to the left or the right, the reader will most certainly go into it. Now here Lewis is talking specifically about writing, but I think that what he says applies to all communication. We assume that people just know what we mean. 
When we say things like, God told me to do this, we assume that people know what we mean. But we're not clear. We're not precise. We're not specific in what we mean. And so we, we let other people decide what we mean instead of us explaining it to them. And so I think the way we, we kind of take what Lewis says and the way we allow it to shape the way we communicate so that we communicate more like Jesus did with the people of his day than we do with the people of our day is we focus on doing three things with the way we talk. The first thing we do is we be, we be precise. We be precise, we be direct, and we be specific. Now, by precise, what I mean is that we use the words that mean what we want to say. So, unless we mean God's audible voice from heaven spoke to me and told me to do this, we probably shouldn't say, God told me to do this. But we say that all the time. Instead, we should say something like, God made it clear to me that this is what I was supposed to do. Because if you're a non-Christian who's never been exposed to the gospel, who's never been exposed to Christian people, someone saying, God made it clear to me that this is what I should do, sounds a lot less crazy than God told me to do this. Or I heard God say this. By direct, I mean that we all need to find or, or use a conversational backbone. A lot of times it's when we try to, to skirt around a specific subject matter, and it's usually the gospel. We try to avoid saying certain things to certain people, and when we do that, we just end up confusing people. And so what we should do is we should just come out and say what we mean. Instead of telling people that we don't think something is a good idea or we think that they should be concerned about how they're living, we should have the boldness and, and the courage and, and the trust in the, the work of the Holy Spirit to just come out and say what we think we should say. Don't say that's a bad idea. Instead say, you know, Scripture says that's sinful and you probably shouldn't do it. It, it sounds a lot harsher. It sounds a lot meaner. It's a lot less comfortable for us to say. But I think in the end it's more loving and more clear and less confusing if we just be direct with people. That's what Jesus did. That's what we see him do in the Gospels. And by specific, I mean that we avoid vague generalities. This is something we do with each other all the time. Instead of saying, the Spirit's really growing me so that I walk in the fruit of the Spirit, be specific. Say, I struggle with anger. And the Spirit has been working in me so that I become more patient with people. That sounds way more normal than saying, the Spirit's been working in me so I walk in the fruit of the Spirit. It's the same thing. It sounds more human. It sounds more realistic. And it's going to communicate a whole lot more to both Christians and non-Christians. You can also say something like, I struggle with having compassion on people. And God has been reminding me of what Christ has done for me, and that's been helping me to love others more. Both of those things teach truth about God to someone else, and they do it in a not-so-creepy and not-so-strange way. 
by being precise with what we say and by being direct with people and by being specific and actually saying what we mean, we will communicate more truth about God in a less awkward way that's more effective and more God-glorifying than we would otherwise. We need to try to talk more like Jesus talked and less like those crazy Christians we see on TV. That's how Jesus talked. That's how he communicates the truth of this parable. And we need to help each other do this. So, with my authority as pastor of this church, I am deputizing all of you as official Believer's Church communication monitors. What that means is that if you're here on Sunday night, if you're at community group, if you're hanging out with a fellow believer, and they say something like we've just talked about that's unhelpful and unclear and just sounds weird, ask them what they mean. Address it. Help, let's help each other to talk more like real people and less like weird Christians. I think if we, if we did that, God would be more glorified in us through that than he is with us saying confusing, meaningless things. If we can't speak clearly and, and helpfully to one another, then there's, there's no way we're going to be able to do it to people outside these walls. The next thing we need to see about this parable before we move on to the explanation is what it communicates. As I said, the parable is that there's this net that's kind of tossed out into the sea. And we need to realize what it is that Jesus is saying there because at, at first glance, we kind of hear that. There's this net that's thrown out into the sea and it catches fish. I, at least, and I imagine you do too, tend to think about that as this kind of random thing, just kind of haphazard. It's by chance. Because I know that if I throw a net into the water and attempt to catch some fish, I'm not doing it with a lot of skill. Just tossing it out there, seeing what comes in. But Jesus helps us out here because he's... Just like we saw, he's precise with his language. The kind of net that he talks about is a very specific type of net. He's talking about this thing called a dragnet. It's this net that fishermen would either pull between two boats, or they'd pull between one boat and the shore. And it's the kind of net that that Peter and James and Andrew and John, that they would have used as professional fishermen. So it's not this kind of thing that happens randomly, this thing that happens by chance. It's this, this tool that is used by professionals for a specific fishing endeavor. And I think that should teach us two things. When we think about how Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven, of, of, of scooping up these fish, not by chance, but as part of a deliberate, systematic plan, should encourage us in two ways. The first way is we should think about the deliberate, systematic way in which God drew us to himself. All of us, if we were to think back on our lives, both, both before Christ and after Christ, I imagine that each of us would be able to point to or think about specific people or specific events that God has used in our lives to make us more like Christ and less like our sinful nature. We'd all be able to do that. We'd all be able to reach back and put our finger on specific things that God has done in our lives, ways that he has worked in a, in a real and tangible way. 
And that should encourage us. It should encourage us because, like we saw a few weeks ago, it's, it's looking back in the past that gives us hope for what God's going to do in the future. It's the first thing that should do. But the second thing that that should do, this, this reality that God kind of systematically draws people to himself into the kingdom of heaven. If I know, and, and you know, that God has used specific people in your lives or in my life in the past, that means that right now, he is using people in the lives of other people to draw them to himself. And I think that what, what that means practically for us is that that means that I can have a reasonable amount of confidence that God is using me in someone's life to make himself known to them. I think that means that you can have a reasonable amount of confidence that God is using you in someone's life to make his son known to them. That should encourage us. Scripture makes it perfectly clear that you don't live and and I don't live where we live by chance. In the book of Acts, we find out that God determines both where we live and when we live where we live. That means that the people we live by, the people that we work with, the people that we go to church with, the people that we're friends with, the people that we're related to, none none of those things happen by chance. All of those things happen because of the deliberate plan of God, and I think that because of that, we should have more confidence that he is working both in our lives and in the lives of others through us. You weren't, and I wasn't, just, just tossed into my neighborhood by chance. God placed us there. And because of that, I think we can have confidence and we should boldly live out and proclaim the gospel where we're at, knowing that God has placed us there with a specific reason and a specific purpose. And if he's worked in our life in the past, he's probably working right now, both in our lives and in the lives of others through us. Now we need to focus on what Jesus says the parable means. We see this in verses 49 through 50. He says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. As we look at this, the, the explanation of the parable, there are, there are four things we need to see here. The first thing are kind of three minor points. And the last thing we need to see is this, this major point that Jesus has through this parable. The first minor point that we should look at is that Jesus says, the angels will come out. This is, a, this is a really small, a really subtle, really minor thing. And so I don't want us to focus too much on it. I just think that it's interesting. It's worth us thinking about. He says, the angels come out and separate the evil from the righteous. That's interesting to me because when I normally think about angels, and I would imagine that when you normally think about angels, we think about them coming down because they're all up there, right? But he doesn't say that. I don't think Jesus is just being lazy with the words that he uses. He says, they come out. There are certainly passages in the New Testament and passages in the Gospel where angels are described as as coming down from heaven, as descending from heaven. But there are also passages like this one in Matthew 13 where they're described as coming out. 
It's almost as if, I think that it is as if, they're already here. They're just hidden. They're already working in the world, in creation, in a way that we can't necessarily always see. And that sounds kind of weird, but we've already seen this in Matthew. We've seen demons, fallen angels, working in the world in a real way where they actually affect things. We've seen them affect people's lives. We've seen them affect the lives of animals. We've seen them speak and do other things. We've seen the bad angels do things in a real way in the world. And here in Matthew 13, we get this glimpse of this this reality that exists in Scripture, that there are angels on the right side who are still waging this conflict that exists behind the scenes that we might not always see. That's something that should encourage us as we, as we think about our lives and the world, as we, we think about the reality of this, this spiritual battle that Scripture says is taking place. All the good guys aren't up there. There's some down here, and they are working for the advance of the kingdom in the world. The second minor point that we need to see here is that what Jesus says is that the angels are the ones that are going to do the sorting. He says that the angels are going to come out and they're going to sort the good from the bad and they're going to throw the evil into the fiery furnace. I know that for me that's important to realize. It's important for me to realize that I don't do the sorting. I think it's important for you to realize that you don't do the sorting. We aren't the ones who get to say they're good and they're bad. They're righteous, they're evil. We aren't the ones that get to decide that. And that's going to happen at the end. And we're not going to be a part of it. The angels do that. It's their job, not ours. But we need to talk about what that does mean and what that doesn't mean. Because, as I said, it's going to happen at the end. And so the the question is, what do we do do now? Do Do we make those kind of statements now? And I think that in some ways we do, right? We, we cannot look into someone else's life and say, this person is righteous, this person's evil. We cannot know that for certainty. But there are places in Scripture where the Bible calls us to make those kinds of decisions. There are probably quite a few. There's, there's a couple that I can think of right off the top of my head. The first is when it comes to marriage, If you're dating someone or you're thinking about dating someone, especially if you're thinking about marrying someone, Scripture says that a Christian should only marry another Christian. That means that all of us who are married, whether we admit it out loud or not, at some point we made a decision. We said, I think that person's a Christian, so I'm going to marry him. If we didn't think, if I didn't think that Jen was really a believer, I wouldn't have married her. If she didn't think I was a believer, and maybe she thought that sometimes, she would have married me. We are called to make that decision. When it comes to the church, that's another place. Scripture teaches throughout the New Testament that only believers are allowed to be members of the local church. That means that each church is responsible for preventing non-Christians from becoming members, from from welcoming non-Christians into the church. At BC, we do this by having a a membership process which is designed to kind of weed out non-Christians in the process. 
At some point, the elders interview each person that wants to join, and we ask them how the gospel has affected their life. We're not saying that we can look into their hearts and know with 100% certainty whether their faith is true or whether their faith is false. We cannot do that. But what we can do, and I think that what we should do as Christians in the world, is we should look at people's lives, look at how they live out the gospel, how they live out of obedience to Christ, and, and judge, not in a condemning way, but in a caring way, whether that person's life lines up with what they say they believe. But I think that when we do that, what this does mean, what we should get from this reality that the angels are the ones that do the sorting, is we should quit saying things like, that person's not a believer. We should quit saying things like, they're not a Christian. They don't love God. They don't believe the Bible. They don't do this. They don't do that. We shouldn't say that thing because we don't, we don't know that that's true. Sure, if someone is a well-known atheist and they make it perfectly clear that they hate God, we can say that guy hates God because he said it himself. But when we're talking about people that, that legitimately believe or think that they are believers, we shouldn't say they're not a believer because as I've said and as we've seen, we don't know their hearts. Instead, what we should say is their life doesn't line up with what they claim to believe. This is a place where we can be more precise about what we really mean and what we really want to say. The third major point we need to see here, we need to learn from, is what Jesus' explanation of the parable tells us about evil. Evil is not something we like to talk about. But what's interesting here is that Jesus says that at the end of the age, at the very end, the angels are going to come out, they're going to sort the righteous from the evil. And what that means, what, the, what this tells us about evil, is that evil is going to exist all the way till the end. There is never going to be a point between now and then when evil is gone. It doesn't matter how many technological advancements we make. It doesn't matter how many medical advancements we make. It doesn't matter how many treaties get signed or peace prizes get awarded. It doesn't matter what happens between now and then. Evil is always going to exist in the world. And when we talk about this, this reality that, that evil exists in the world and that it's always going to exist, that leads most people to ask a question about the future. Most people want to know is the world going to keep getting better or is the world going to keep getting worse? Is it going to get better and better and better and better and better until evil's gone? Or is it going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until evil is finally taken away? And those of you who know me well probably know that my answer to this question is yes. Both of these things are true. There are some ways in which evil is going to keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. There are some ways in which the world is going to keep getting better and better and better and better. After a week of triple-digit temperatures, I would guess that most of us would say that a world with air conditioning is better than a world without air conditioning. Right? The world is better after air conditioning than it was before. On a serious note, we can look at the world 
look at the spread of the gospel and say the gospel is going places that it has never, ever gone before. People in some of the most remote parts of the world are hearing the name of Jesus who didn't hear the name of Jesus before. In that way, the world is better than it was before that happened. But at the same time, the world is worse. We know that that people are getting more and more violent. Wars are getting more and more frequent. Weapons are getting more and more destructive. Destroying human life has become this, this clinical, routine thing. The world is getting worse and worse and worse, but it's also getting better. This passage tells us that evil will exist to the end and that we're going to be affected by it and the lives of those we love are going to be affected by it. But what this passage also tells us is that righteousness is going to exist till the end and righteousness is going to exist even after evil has been removed from the world and that's what we need to focus on. That's this, this major point of Jesus in the parable is that the kingdom of heaven divides everyone into two groups. These two groups, he tells us, are the evil and the righteous. And at first, it's not abundantly clear to us what it is that separates these groups. But I think for most of us, it's pretty clear which group we want to be in. Right? The angels come out, they separate the evil from the righteous and throw them, throw the evil, into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We don't have to know much of Scripture to know that that's a bad thing. That's not something that we want to have happen to us. And so the question for us, and the question that the disciples would have had, is is what do we have to do to get into that other group? I don't want to be in the evil group. I don't want to be thrown into this furnace. What do I have to do to be considered righteous? And some of the disciples, I imagine being trained in Scripture from an early age, they would have thought about Psalm 14. Psalm 14 is where David says this. Says the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. And verse three tells us David tells us what the Lord finds when he looks. He says, They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The Apostle Paul picks this up in Romans. He says this He says, None is righteous, no, not one. That's the answer to the question of of who are the second group? Who gets into the second group? David tells us, and Paul tells us, and the rest of the Bible tells us, nobody does. No one's righteous. All of us are in that group that gets thrown into the furnace. But obviously we're here today because we know that that's not the end of the story. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us this, 5.21. He says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul's saying is that God the Father made Jesus, who was innocent, who was perfect, who was righteous, God made him guilty and imperfect and unrighteous, so that through Christ, us who are unrighteous could become righteous. 
What he's getting at is the idea that it's, it's through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, through his sacrifice on the cross, that God both takes all of our sin as Christ pays the penalty for them. He takes that away from us. And then he replaces that with Christ's righteousness. And so the answer is still the same. Even after 2 Corinthians, the answer is still that, that, that none of us are righteous. No one is except for Christ, but because of his grace, by grace through faith in the gospel, his righteousness is given to us. So I'm not righteous, you're not righteous, no one is righteous except for Christ, but Christ, by his grace, gives us that righteousness. We don't earn or deserve a place in the kingdom. We, we all deserve the fiery furnace. It's only through his work and through he, who he is that we get another destiny. So if you're here tonight and you haven't trusted in Christ, this passage tells us clearly, there's really no other way to understand that this passage tells us what your destiny is going to be. It tells us that you're evil. And I know that that's not polite and that's not nice and that's not politically correct, but that's what this passage says. It says that apart from Christ, you are like everyone else and you are unrighteous. And the unrighteous will be thrown into this fiery furnace. And so if that describes you, I would encourage you to trust in Christ. And that's not a a one-time thing. It's not some simple thing where we just pray a prayer and, and we're fine. It's a act of faith in what he has done and who he is that's lived out in obedience to him. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, I think we still need to feel the weight of this passage. It's really easy for us to think, I've heard the gospel before. I've heard about hell before. I know that that exists. I know that that's there. I know that that's where those apart from Christ are going to go and then just leave it there but we can't leave it there. We need to be reminded that people in this second group exist in our lives. Our neighbors, our co-workers, our family members, people that we, we claim to love are in this second group. And we need to make that specific so that it actually impacts us. Don't just leave it out there and think, okay, the lost, my lost coworkers are going to go to hell. Think Jim, a guy guy whose desk is next to mine. Don't just think, some people in my family are, are, are going to be thrown into that fiery furnace. Think, my dad is apart from Christ. That's what's going to happen to him. This should bother us. This this should affect us. The fact that they will weep and gnash their teeth later should cause us to do that now. This reality should break us for those in our lives who we know do not know Christ. And that's not something we should just shrug off. That's not something we should just dismiss because it's unhappy. It doesn't make us feel good. 
We need to recognize this reality and live in light of it. We need to recognize that God intervened in our lives. He did something in my life. He did something in your life that brought us to faith in Christ. And we need to ask Him to do that in the lives of those people that we love, the people that we care about, the people that we haven't even met yet. Because we know what awaits them if they don't. Our parable tonight should cause us to be outwardly grateful for what Christ has done for us. I think that that that, that word outwardly is significant. Because if, if, if we really believe what this passage says, if we really think and know and see in this passage that this reality exists, that the kingdom divides people into two groups, if we know that this is what's going to happen to people at the end of the age, if that, if that bothers us, if that, if that grips us, if that impacts our life, if Christ has really done that for us, then why don't we live like it? Why doesn't that reality affect how I live in my neighborhood, how I live at work, how I live with my family members. Why doesn't it affect how you live? This isn't my attempt to, to guilt us into sharing Christ with people. These are real questions that we need to face, that we need to think about. If we really believe these things, then why don't we do it? In John eleven forty, Jesus is talking to to Martha about the fact that her brother has just died, and he's just asked asked the question of the people. He's, he's told the people there to to take away the stone that covers the tomb. And Martha, being the kind of helpful person that she is, tells Jesus, "He's been dead for four days. He's going to stink." We probably don't want to open that place up. And John eleven forty is what Jesus says to Martha. He says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That's what he tells her. He says, open up the tomb. She says, my brother's dead. He's going to smell bad. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then four verses later, her dead brother comes walking out of the tomb. We know that story to the point that it doesn't even cause a reaction. Big deal. A guy raised from the dead. I don't know about you, but I want to see God raise the dead in my neighborhood, both metaphorically and literally. I want to see God work in powerful ways. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God, and then Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb? Do 
I want to see his kingdom grow and his gospel spread. I want to see people that I know that are in this second group be moved into this first group. I want to see other people impacted by the reality of what Christ has done for us. I want to see myself, I want to see you impacted by that reality to the degree that we actually go out and do something about it instead of just talking about it. This parable teaches us that his kingdom will divide the world into two groups at the end. Those that have trusted in Christ will inherit a life that we can't even begin to imagine. Those who have not trusted in Christ, this parable tells us, will be thrown into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The question for me and the question for you is, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do tonight? What are we going to do this week? What are we going to do next week? Because people I know and people I love and people you know and people you love are in that second group. And I believe, I believe this passage teaches that God wants to use us to do something about that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we don't live where we live and we don't go to church where we go to church simply by chance. But that we are all here tonight because at some point in the past you intervened in our lives to bring us both to the knowledge of saving faith in your Son and to this place that we are tonight. God, I thank you that your word is living and active. That it penetrates our hearts. And I ask, God, that by the power of your spirit, you would stick the realities in this passage deep within us. That the enemy wouldn't distract us from them. That we and our flesh wouldn't just shrug them off as unimportant. but that the reality of what you have done for us in the person of your Son, what he has done for us on the cross, that these things would be meaningful and real to us. That the reality that there are people in our lives who haven't been impacted by the saving grace of the gospel and they are going to hell, that that would bother us. And that we we wouldn't be able to forget that and just get distracted by life, but that it would affect the way we act in our lives towards them. God, help us to have faith in your word and help us by the power of your spirit to act on what your word says. God, we want to see the dead raised in our city. We want to see the gospel go forth in our city and in our nation and in our world. Help us to believe that you will do it. We 
We thank you for Christ's sacrifice. That it makes us who are evil considered righteous in your sight. And then it's because of what he's done and not because of who we are or what we've done, but it's because of what he's done. That one day we will inherit a life that is beyond imagination. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.